You're listening to a podcast about brain health in diverse America. The goal of this podcast is to inform listeners about the latest research on healthy brain aging and risk factors leading to cognitive impairment and dementia. While the scientific community knows that aging affects brain health of Black, Hispanic, and European Americans quite differently, we still don't know the why and the how that this happens. This podcast will closely examine healthy and unhealthy aging in America as we discuss themes especially relevant to Black and Hispanic Americans. I'm Dr. David Johnson, Director of the California Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in the East Bay, and one of many scientists working on the Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study. This podcast is a production of the National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, and the UC Davis School of Medicine. This podcast is produced by Darling New Media Podcast Studios in Sacramento, California. My guest today is Dr. John Detry. Dr. Detry is a clinical scientist whose research focuses on brain imaging and its applications in basic and clinical neuroscience. He is a professor of neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the co-director of the Neuroimaging Corps at the Penn Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. His overall research focuses on cerebral blood flow and metabolism under normal conditions and in response to brain injury. His research primarily uses magnetic resonance imaging, including functional imaging and spectroscopy. In his clinical work, he cares for patients with headache, stroke, and other neurological disorders. In this episode of Brain Health in Diverse America, our guest and I will talk about the importance of magnetic resonance imaging in brain research and in the diverse BCID study. Okay, Dr. Tetrick, can you explain to the audience what magnetic resonance imaging is? Sure. Magnetic resonance imaging is a form of medical imaging uh, that is extremely useful uh, clinically uh, and provides unprecedented uh, resolution and contrast, in particular for studying the brain. One of the reasons for that is that unlike uh, X-rays or computed tomography, which is based on X-rays, the signals in MRI are based on radio frequency energy. Um, radio frequency signals are the same signals that are used for broadcast radio and television. And those penetrate uh, readily uh, through tissues. So unlike an X-ray where the skull is a dense substance that obscures the signal from the much less dense brain, the radio frequency basically passes right through the skull and allows the brain uh, to be visualized in beautiful uh, resolution and detail. Uh, 
Another benefit of this approach is that radio frequency energy is very low compared to X-ray energy. So an MRI scan is considered uh, non-invasive and not harmful. There's no known risk of exposure to MRI. And then a third key benefit is that most of the signal from clinical MRI is derived from tissue water. So the actual radio frequency signals are from energy being absorbed and emitted by tissue water. And it is possible to probe many aspects of tissue water. So the same MRI machine can give a dozen different types of pictures depending on how the image is acquired. And so that makes it particularly powerful for studying lots of aspects of brain structure and function. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, and, and so can you help us understand a little bit more about what is it, what, what's the use of the MR, MRI? What do we learn from an MRI about someone's brain water? Well, in clinical rates, so let me just start again. Uh, MRI is probably the most widely used clinical test for patients with brain disorders. And in most cases, a clinical MRI is ordered by a doctor in order to look for structural problems in the brain. Things like strokes, tumors, hemorrhages, multiple sclerosis lesions, enlarged ventricles, any kind of structural problem. Uh, but MRI is also an extremely powerful research tool because in addition to looking for structural abnormalities, with MRI we can quantify detailed aspects of brain morphology, which is the anatomy or the shape of the structures in the brain, as well as several aspects of brain physiology, such as uh, blood flow uh, at microscopic levels, as well as in large arteries. And we can probe uh, aspects of uh, brain ultrastructure uh, that tell us things about uh, tissue integrity. So, uh, you know, the, the, the potential applications of brain MRI and research, research are constantly being evolved and expanded. Uh, one popular area of brain MRI is something called functional MRI, which almost everybody's seen in the popular press, where uh, during an MRI, the research subject is asked to perform some type of task. And by using MRI signals that are sensitized to the changes in brain blood flow and metabolism, uh, regional brain blood flow and metabolism, we can generate maps showing activation patterns. So uh, really almost every few years, a new form of MRI contrast is elucidated uh, that allows us to learn more and more about uh, the brain structure and function. Oh, so that's that's neat to know. Those are the images that you see when people are taking lie detector tests or special uh, uh, exactly. uh, 
you know, uh, fictional mind reading kind of things on the TV or science fiction. But you can't really do that. You don't know what somebody's thinking from these images, do you? Well, actually, um, functional MRI methods do allow you to access uh, what somebody is thinking above above and beyond what you might be able to observe clinically. The most stark example of this are studies in patients who are thought to be in coma or persistent vegetative states in whom when they're placed in an MRI scan and asked to do some sort of task, like imagine you're navigating around your house or imagine you're playing tennis and the functional MRI study shows a normal activation pattern. So in, that's a great example of how accessing what the brain is doing can tell you something different than what you would be able to assess by clinical examination, which may look like the patient isn't cognitively active. But those types of applications are few and far between. One of the first, uh, one of the first research studies that proved uh, the point we're discussing now is a simple imagery task in a healthy person. So, uh, you know, Early validations of all functional imaging methods tend to evolve around things like, can we see the motor areas of the brain light up when somebody is tapping their fingers? And you can. Uh, that's, a, you know, that's a very simple activation task. But what was unknown until the advent of functional MRI was whether was what the activation pattern would be if somebody was just imagining that they were tapping fingers. And in that case, you see a very similar activation pattern to actually tapping the fingers. And that's, again, something you wouldn't have been able to infer, infer just by looking at behavior. Now, research has evolved, at least clinical research has evolved away from uh, primarily focusing on task activation, because it turns out that if we look at the dynamic function of the so-called resting brain, when somebody's awake and in the scanner, but not necessarily performing a specific task, we can see different brain regions communicating with each other because of correlated signals. And those kind of studies reveal a number of distributed networks of brain function that we now think are very critical for higher order cognition, as well as, you know, lower brain functions like emotion or uh, attention. And um, so most research fMRI study or most research MRI studies now incorporate these measures of brain network function as well. So this is really fascinating, Dr. Detry. Uh, the, the, some of the Topics that really uh, uh, impress me right now that we're talking about is how much work has already gone into years and years of very safe MRI um, uh, 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 clinical research and how much we know about the brain today and how fast that's evolving at currently and how important it is as a tool 
to really understand some really fundamental aspects of brain health. Um, and, and in particular, can you just comment on why is this particular scan, this MRI scan, such an important part of the vascular cognitive impairment and dementia study? Uh, well, let me just start by saying uh, my own career path has was such that, or I'm going to start this again. I'm going to start by saying that when I first heard that it was possible to non-invasively measure brain structure and function with this type of technology, I was in a medical student and I was working in a neuroanatomy lab or we doing you know, looking at slices of brain under the microscope. And previously I had worked in a neurochemistry lab where we measured uh, aspects of brain function by homogenizing brain samples and running out proteins on gels. And when I heard that we could non-invasively study not just the structure, but the function of the living brain, I basically dropped what I was doing and shifted to that. And that was in the early 1980s. And so over the past 40 years, uh, this approach, MRI scanning, has evolved to be the most important method for uh, studying the living, functioning human brain uh, in, in both basic science and in healthy subjects and in clinical research and patients. That's exciting um, and really neat to think about. It was a lot of fun to be involved with that. And uh, with res specific regard to the DVCID study, this is a study that is focusing primarily on chronic vascular dysfunction of the brain. Uh, you know, VCID stands for vascular cognitive impairment and dementia. And so these are the effects of typically long-standing cardiovascular and cerebrovascular dysfunction. And those, uh, that type of disorder manifests several ways in the brain. Uh, firstly, there can be uh, overt brain lesions like strokes or hemorrhages that uh, reflect uh, so-called cerebrovascular accidents or strokes. Um, and those show up better on an MRI scan than any other scanning modality. Secondly, um, all of cerebrovascular dysfunction is ultimately related to problems with blood flow and blood supply. And MRI is the best non-invasive way to measure the blood flow both in large arteries, in smaller arteries, as well as capillary perfusion of the brain. So we can directly measure the physiology underlying the lesions. That so how the blood gets to all the different parts of the brain, and if there's a sick part, how it's using blood or not using blood. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Excellent. Exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, in summary, that's, yeah, that is a, a that is correct. And then furthermore, uh, even before there are overt structural, 
there's overt structural damage to the brain. Uh, there can be changes in the brain tissue that are detectable with uh, methods like diffusion tensor MRI, which measures uh, the molecular environment of water on a really uh, microscopic level. So it, it, it measures properties of the tissue that aren't so visible to the naked That's eye. That's amazing. And methods like that are critical because they can potentially detect the presence of vascular disease you know, before it becomes clinically manifest. Wow. And really, the ability to predict uh, disease is even more powerful than the ability to, you know, diagnose disease after it's already happened. And then finally, uh, all, you know, the whole brain is tied together through these structural, structural and functional networks. And so ultimately, a small lesion in one part of the brain or a, a collection of small lesions can affect disparate parts of the brain. And with advanced MRI methods, we can make very careful measurements of all the anatomical structures in the brain and relate you know, changes in vascular dysfunction or focal vascular lesions to changes in things like cortical thickness, regional cortical thickness, and ultimately uh, try to understand how it is that problems with uh, cerebrovascular and cardiovascular function lead to cognitive impairment and dementia. Wow. The work that's being done here sounds incredible. It sounds like almost uh, like the, the next generation or at least the most cutting edge imaging and clinical medical diagnostics that we have available to us. And, and it's uh, just amazing to hear the types of things that we can do with magnetic resonance imaging and the applications. It's, um, you know, catching disease before it really evolves into something where it's functionally impacting the, the older adult is, is like science fiction um, to so many people. And it's exciting to think that we could do. I mean, that's really the goal of a study of a study like DVCID is to try to, you know, understand the evolution of vascular cognitive impairment and ultimately be able to predict and intervene. So, Dr. Dutchery, is there something specific that if somebody, if one of our participants that is coming in for a clinical study, a, a lab where they're going to get this MRI um, uh, lab done, do they need to do anything uh, before they come? Is there something that they can be, did they need to prepare for? Well, well, there are certain contraindications to an What's MRI a contraindication? Scan. And so they will. So a contraindication is, uh, you know, a reason why you can't have an yeah. MRI scan. And those are mostly related to the fact that, you know, much of what makes MRI possible is a very strong magnet. So the reason why the MRI scanner is this big hulking machine is because it's housing a magnet that produces something like 60,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, so 
probably the most powerful magnet that you're ever going to come across. And so uh, certainly uh, anybody who has uh, metal fragments anywhere in their body, say they worked in a machine shop and might have metal fragment in their eye or they've had medical procedures, uh, maybe some implanted hardware or devices, some screening needs to take place first. And there's almost always, uh, you know, a, a, an interaction about that. So we're very, in general, very careful about that. In many cases, uh, medical hardware that's been developed over the last few decades is MRI compatible. And even something like a pacemaker, which is semi uh, contraindicated because the magnetic field can uh, disturb the pacemaker. If somebody with a pacemaker really needs an MRI scan, uh, they can have their pacemaker turned off and then turned back on after the scan. But usually for a research MRI scan, we're, we're not going to be scanning people with pacemakers. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that, uh, of course, this powerful magnet will attract any metal. So uh, it's best not to be wearing anything with metal on it. Uh, most MRI uh, facilities will ask people to change into, say, a scrub, uh, scrub suit or a, or a medical gown for an MRI. But some places, if you wear something like a sweatpants and sweatshirt that clearly doesn't have any metal in it, uh, you would be allowed to go into the scanner. Uh, so, you know, pay attention to what you're wearing. One of the most common places of hidden metal is something like an underwire bra that has actually a piece of metal in it and has to be removed before going in the scanner. And, uh, you know, sometimes things like body piercings or certain types of tattoos or permanent makeup, uh, you know, need to be double checked. Uh, and it turns out more recently, more and more athletic wear has metal fragments. Oh, in it. So apparently some, a lot of yoga pants have metal in them for, I don't know what, either the appearance or antibacterial properties. And uh, so be careful about what you wear. Now, with some attention to that and the screening procedures, uh, we, we really never encounter any problems, but I'm just explaining why these issues will come up before this year. Well, well, that's good. That, um, that's great to know um, because we'll, I, I'm, I know uh, firsthand that we ask our participants a lot of questions, and there are good reasons why these, we ask the questions like, do you wear an underwire bra? Or <laughs> do you have any tattoos? These are, or piercings, you know, these sound like really uh, personally evasive or odd questions, especially given that the study right. is for primarily older adults who don't have a lot of piercings, but it's still really important to screen for these things because it's a sounds like a pretty strong magnet. Um, Besides the immediate pieces of, you know, the, 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 the concerns that we just talked about having metal, you know, metal earrings or metal rings or keys, uh, you know, are there any long term effects of being in an MRI? Is there something that people need to be thinking about or concerned? Are there risks at all? As far as we know, there are no uh, either short term or 
long-term consequences of going in an MRI machine, particularly the types of MRI machines that are being used for the DCID study, which are three Tesla MRI machines. There are some MRI systems that have stronger magnets like seven Tesla or 10 Tesla. And with those magnets, sometimes people feel transient dizziness or disequilibrium when they're sliding in and out of the magnet. But with three Tesla scanners, we pretty much don't see any kind of uh, symptoms. Now, one thing somebody might discover when they go into an MRI scanner is whether they have claustrophobia or not. Claustrophobia is a fear of enclosed spaces because, you know, this magnet is basically like, you could think of it like a giant pencil sharpener. It's a big, long metal tube. And you go into that tube and it's pretty comfortable in there. You're on a padded bed and there's usually a fan and some lighting. And sometimes there's a, you know, a mirror system where you can see a screen or you're listening to music on headphones. But, you know, if you are uncomfortable in enclosed spaces, um, it might be more challenging. Uh, I still think somebody who, who is afraid of small or feels uncomfortable in small and enclosed spaces could make it through an MRI scan. And one of the ways is just to close your eyes, you know, while being slid in and out. In my experience, you know, I don't really get close claustrophobic, but it's when you're sliding in on the motorized table where you kind of feel things closing in on you. Once the table stops and you're comfortable, um, it's it's doesn't feel as claustrophobic. And uh, you know, those of us who work in this field uh, have had hundreds of MRI scans as we test our methods on each other and. You know, I can barely stay awake inside of the scanner. When I get in there, you know, I have no phone, no computer. Just, Sounds like heaven. You know, well, I wouldn't say peace and quiet because the MRI system does make some kind of banging and beeping noises uh, as it's scanning. But but it is nonetheless, for me, a relaxing experience. Um so uh, um, I think I have probably uh, one more question that I think that people uh, ask me is like, is are there ways to tell who you are by looking at your brain image, by looking at the MRI? Do you ever see the face? Is there ever any way to know from the research scan? Who, oh, this is Mr. Jones. Um can you can you say anything about the identification of these scans and are they really unique? Yeah. Yes, I can. I, I can, and there's not a completely clear answer to that question. So, first of all, uh, all medical images have, along with the actual images, uh, other information. Uh, so the image formats includes field, fields for things like name and address and you know name of the person who ordered it, whoever did the scan and all that. So uh, certain parts of that information are identifying. But for research studies, we either you know, don't enter that information to start with or 
we remove that information when we, uh, after the scan, and when we aggregate the data for further analysis. So uh, if procedures are working properly, you know, nowhere in the data are somebody's, say, written name and date of birth or social security number or anything like that. Now, uh, when we get a high-resolution scan of somebody's brain, we also are scanning their head. There's no way to image the brain without the head. And so you can reconstruct a three-dimensional surface image, which looks a little bit like the person. I mean, hair doesn't show up, but it, it, you know, it looks sort of like a, like a mannequin version of somebody. And so it's a little controversial right now to what extent that is identifying. Uh, it's probably not identifying in the sense that, say, uh, video surveillance cameras could recognize your face and compare it to a database because this surface rendering doesn't look anything like any picture of you out there. Mm -hmm. But if you knew the person, I would say if you, if, if, if I showed you five of these surface renderings and one of them was somebody who you knew, you might be able to recognize, oh yeah, that's what that person would look like if they didn't have eyebrows and eyelashes and you know facial hair, hair on their head. You know that, that sort of looks like that person. And so, um, researchers that are doing large-scale MRI studies are uh, trying to evaluate the need for. Uh, uh, image processing steps that can kind of scramble uh, the signals that are coming from facial features. We don't use, um, nothing about our analysis cares about, you know, what your nose or your earlobes or, mm. you know, cheeks look like. We're really only interested in the brain. Um, and, and I think this, for the most part at the moment, uh, the field does not consider facial features as represented in a, you know, MRI scan as identifying, uh, but it's under active uh, discussion whether or not to, um, to consider that identifying and strip that data. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, the downside of removing it is that it may, you know, the algorithms that remove the facial features could inadvertently uh, somehow, you know, damage the, the data from the brain. So there are pros and cons, but at the moment we can we don't consider it identifying in the sense of private health information. Well, it, it sounds like you would need some pretty special software to go through all these slices of pictures to create a three-dimensional rendering of it. Sounds like you need to have uh, some pretty fancy software to do that in the first place. Not that people don't have it, but. Yeah, I mean, that kind of software is, the, you know, if you're in this field, that's the kind of software you're using all the time. Although, to be honest, for scientific reasons, we never mm -hmm. look at a surface rendering of somebody's face. We, you know, that's not why we're doing an yeah. MRI scan, but um, somebody might. Right. Yeah. This is a brain scan, not a face scan that we're interested in. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. wanted to. Uh, help the audience understand 
magnetic resonance imaging better today. And, um, you know, these are, it's just such a fascinating, you know, really cutting edge technology and the possibilities are just really exciting. I wanted to make sure that our audiences and our participants knew why it's such an important tool. And I really want to thank you for your time and, um, and your expertise and your dedication to continuing to understand these really complex processes in the brain. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to be on this podcast with you. It was a pleasure talking. Thank you for listening to Brain Health in Diverse America. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Brain Health in Diverse America podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. Brain Health in Diverse America is brought to you by the NIH grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study and the UC Davis School of Medicine. To learn more about participating in our nationwide Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, click on the link in the episode description. Any questions or comments, please email us at diversevcid, all one word, at ucdavis.edu. And thanks for listening.